Well, great to see all of you this morning. I have a number of thoughts I want to share with you today. Last week we finished our study of the book of Daniel. We spent 24 Sundays looking at that wonderful prophetic book, and I hope you will return to it from time to time to revisit some of the issues that we studied along the way. God's final words to Daniel that we talked about last week included the encouragement or the exhortation, you might say, to go your way until the time of the end, God said to Daniel. In other words, just keep living a responsible life, Daniel. Just keep doing what you've been doing for the last 70 plus years. Live for God, serve God, obey God, love God until the time of the end. And I've been thinking about that exhortation this week, and I came across some devotional thoughts by David Jeremiah that I wanted to share with you. Uh, his devotional thought was titled, uh, the, the, uh, Your Appointed Time. He said, God has appointed every person for his or her ordained time, and our place in history is no accident. The Lord who makes no mistakes plans the details of our lives, including the moment we enter the world and the moment we leave it. Our times are in his hands. So you and I are living in our appointed time. We are here at this moment because God appointed it. If God has you here, he has called you into the world and to the world as it is at this present time. How do we know that? Well, of King David, he said in Psalm 139, You saw me before I was born, David said, speaking to the Lord. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Esther, she was born, the scripture says, for such a time as this. Esther chapter 4 and verse 4. Job said in Job 14, A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. God said to Jeremiah, the Lord told him, Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. And before you were born, I sanctified you and ordained you as a prophet to the nations. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said in John chapter 12, He said, For this purpose I came to this hour. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that same, that same truth is true for you and me. It's difficult to make sense of our lives uh, and it, it, without acknowledging the fact that we are here on this planet in the will of God, in the timing of God, and for the purposes of God. You were born at just the right time on your calendar. I remember when I was young, I used to think, boy, it would have been kind of fun to live in the 1800s. And then I started thinking about the 1800s, thought, you know... I kind of like electricity and indoor plumbing. I don't think I'd want to live in the 1800s. You know, we, we, we have all these wonderful thoughts of how cool it would be to go back in time to do this and that and the other. But you know what? God has you right here in 2022 because this is exactly where he wants you to be. You were born exactly the time he wanted you to be born. You were, you were born into the family that, you, that God wanted you to be born in. He, he put you in the geographic location that he wanted you to be. You are here because it is your appointed time. Now, we are here in his will, in his timing, and for his glory. So, how exciting. And when we think about King David uh, and what the scripture said of him in Acts chapter 13, it says he served his own generation and then fell asleep. Interesting thoughts. 17th century Puritan writer named Richard Sibbs, he was thinking about this. And he wrote, he said, David had his generation wherein he served the Lord. Therefore, while we have time here, let us be sure to do good before we be taken away suddenly. We know not how soon. Every man has his own appointed time. 
when to come into the world and when to go out. Therefore the times wherein they live are foreknown to God. He has set down when such a man shall be born, and in such an age of the world. So long he shall live, such work he shall do, and when he has done his work, he shall be taken away to heaven. Everyone has his own generation designed and appointed and ordained by God for himself and for all eternity. So here's the thing that is very exciting for us when we really think about what these thoughts are and what God told day or what God, God told Daniel that we read on last week. That we we today are the recipients of the ministries of past generations. The apostles who turned the world upside down, the martyrs who perished in the arenas and at the stake, those who were pastors and evangelists in past generations the godly parents and grandparents who generation after generation raised their families in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, their names, some of their names may be lost to us until we get to heaven, but their work goes on through us, and so by God's grace will your work and my work be the same. Uh, we are sowers of the word who may not live long enough to see the harvest. We are mariners who may depart this life before we ever reach the other shore. We are servants who don't know how fully the Lord may be using us, but we work it by faith, knowing our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And one of these days, you and I are going to leave this life, and we are going to see in heaven all of those who have gone on before us. We're going to see those who have gone before, who served God, who, who made an impact for Christ. On down the line, you may suddenly run across some guy and say, you know, I'm glad I met you. I just read your book three weeks ago. You think I'm kidding? I think it'll actually turn out that way. I think you'll see some people that you, you recognize their names. Oh, there's so-and-so. Oh, wow, how about that? Hey, I want to go meet him. Maybe we can have dinner. Talk about time travel and going back in the generations. My challenge this as we introduce our thoughts today, live fully in your appointed time with all the energy of Christ. Because you are living, not just for now, you are living for the generations to follow you. You have no idea who's going to find the things that you leave behind in the end, and who's going to be impacted by the influence that you leave behind, just as we have been influenced by those who've gone on before us. So as God said to Daniel, go your way until the time of the end, then you'll rise to your reward. Well, the last half of the book of Daniel is filled with interesting and amazing prophecies. We've seen descriptions of the rise and fall of the world's great empires. Just uh, by way of a brief review before we look at our topic for this morning, remember that biblical history revolves around the Jewish people and the nations that impact Israel and her people. So empires that did not have a direct impact on Israel are not given a lot of mention in Scripture. And we had four dominating empires that God revealed to Daniel, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And that last empire, Rome, God said, is going to morph and evolve and redefine herself over the centuries until she exists in the end times as a ten-nation alliance or confederacy. The Antichrist is going to rise out of that ten-nation Roman alliance to persecute the Jewish people. We've talked much about the seven-year tribulation, the 70th seven of Daniel 9. We've seen several descriptions of the Antichrist, several revelations about what he'll be like and what he'll try to do. 
We see how horrifying the time will be for the Jewish people and for all who dwell on the earth. The Antichrist is going to make some sort of peace treaty with Israel. We don't know precisely, because the Bible doesn't tell exactly what all that entails, but he's going to make some sort of a peace treaty with Israel, allowing them to reinstitute sacrifices, which is going to involve uh, the rebuilding of the temple. And the signing of that treaty is going to start the prophetic clock for the next seven years, whenever that happens. Then the Antichrist is going to break the treaty halfway through the seven years. Horrifying persecution is going to come to the Jewish people for that next three and a half years. And then a supernatural divine king is going to arise and defeat the Antichrist and destroy his armies and smash all human empires and set up his own everlasting kingdom. And we know, of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a 90-second overview of the prophetic portions of Daniel. As we saw in Daniel 12, God did not answer all of Daniel's questions. We see the grand scheme, we see the overall plan, but there is still an element of mystery to Bible prophecy. One item on God's prophetic schedule that he did not reveal to Daniel, did not reveal until the Apostle Paul revealed it, and that is the event that we call the rapture. The second coming of Christ in his glory to judge the nations and set up his kingdom very clearly in view. But the rapture was not revealed in the Old Testament. Resurrection was known and believed by the Lord's people in the Old Testament, but not the rapture. It was unknown until God revealed it to us through the writings of the Apostle Paul. I'd like you to take your Bible, if you would, and look first of all at the Gospel of John in chapter 14. Gospel of John in chapter 14. If you read any prophetic material, I know some of you do, or at least listen to people who are talking about it, you are soon going to realize that eschatology, as we call it, the study of the last things, or end of times, has produced an enormous variety of opinions and positions among Bible students. There are theologically conservative, born-again, Bible-believing people who have many different positions regarding the second coming of the Lord Jesus, particularly the rapture. There are at least three major views of the millennium. <coughs> we call it amillennial, postmillennial, or premillennial. And by amillennial, we mean those, those guys don't think there really is a millennium. They don't think there's going to be a real thousand-year reign of Christ. They think it's all symbolic. Now, post-millennial fellows think that, that the earth is going to get better and better and that the Church of Jesus Christ is going to kind of take over uh, the planet eventually. And then after we have Christianized the whole globe, then the Lord Jesus Christ will, will come back. I'm, I'm not sure how they can watch the news and, and still hold that position, but anyway, they do. And there are a number of them out there actually making a little resurgence in the last 20 years or so. And then there are others who are premillennial, which is what I am, as you all probably know, which means that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to literally, physically come back to this earth, and he's going to set up a kingdom that's going to last for a thousand years. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. That's why we call it the millennium. It means uh, 1,000. And so uh, if you are premillennial, which a lot of guys are, then even among them, you've got five different positions regarding the rapture. At least five. Some believe that the rapture will occur at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Others think that the rapture will happen in the middle of the tribulation. There's a variation to that called the pre-wrath rapture, where somewhere around the middle of the tribulation, uh, but before it really gets real bad, so they think that then the Christ will come back. 
There is a partial rapture theory, not very popular these days, but some people still talk about it, that only those who are living for the Lord will be raptured and carnal Christians will be left to suffer in the tribulation. Finally, there is the pre-tribulation rapture that Jesus will come back and remove his disciples from this earth before the seven-year tribulation begins. And I just, want to, I just want to tell you that your position on the timing of the rapture is not an eternal destiny issue. You can be post-trib and go to heaven. It's, likely, it's unlikely that you'll live through the tribulation, so you'll probably get there real fast, but you will still go to heaven. I have met one of the leading proponents, the leading proponent of the pre-wrath position. I've heard him preach. My brother used to work for him. He's a fine man who loves the Lord. I have a signed copy of his book that explains his position. It didn't convince me, but it was quite interesting. I have no doubt we'll be in heaven together. He's a fine man who loves God. We have some very good Christian friends who are post-trib. Your, in fact, one of our Christian friends who's post-trib says, I've kind of been taught post-trib all my life, but I sure hope you guys are right. <laughs> Nobody in their right mind wants to live through the tribulation. And anyway, but, your, but my, my point being, your, your position on the timing of the rapture is not a salvation issue. It does affect the way you view lots of passages, but it's not a salvation issue. As most of you know, I'm premillennial, I'm pre-tribulational. And I want to just talk about for the next several weeks uh, some of these issues relating to that issue because there is not, there is not one verse or one passage that tells us specifically when the rapture is going to happen. There is not one passage that teaches the post-tribulation rapture. There is not one passage that teaches the pre-tribulation rapture. There is not one passage that teaches the mid-trib or pre-wrath rapture. Uh, we, we look at prophecy, we look at what is said, and we kind of gather all of these thoughts together and come up with when we believe the, the, the rapture is going to be. But there is not one verse... That, that, that says exactly when it's going to happen. We do, however, say, and, uh, and, and are quite certain that the rapture and the second coming of Christ are two separate events. How far apart they are, the Bible doesn't specifically say. But we believe they're two different events. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. But let's look at John chapter 14. We read these verses all the time. People like to read them at funerals, and, and uh, most people who've been around in any church for any amount of time, they've heard the first six verses of John chapter 14. But I want you to think about something with me for a moment. Here is Jesus, the night before he was crucified. In fact, from the time he spoke these words, he's probably 12 hours approximately, and he's on the cross. And so Jesus says to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now we have read those verses so many times that I don't think we really understand how the disciples were viewing that. The disciples didn't think Jesus was going anywhere. They thought he was the Messiah and he was going to establish his kingdom. And so, for, and of course, they had no idea Jesus was going to be on the cross the next morning. They were totally clueless about all of that. They're observing the Passover with the Lord Jesus in the upper room. 
And then Jesus comes along and says, basically, I'm leaving. And I'm sure they're going, huh? You're leaving? Yeah. He says, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. So for the first time, the Lord Jesus Christ says to his disciples, I am leaving, but I am also coming back. And I am going to take you where I am. And I am going to prepare a place for you to live in my Father's house, and I'm going to bring you back to where I am. He doesn't call it a rapture, he, but, but he does say, I'm coming back, and I'm going to take you where I am. What is the difference between, when we look through the Scripture, this one and, and all the way through the book of Revelation and other places, what happens differently? Look, turn, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 15 while I'm reading some of this to you. 1 Corinthians 15. When you read all of the various passages that deal with the return of Christ, you see one thing where it talks about believers being changed. When it's, when it's, a, it's some reference to the rapture, there is a change. There is, we get a glorified body. We get a body that's different from our other body. It might be a resurrection body. If we die, we'll get a well, our body will be resurrected. We'll get a body like the Lord Jesus Christ. When the second coming comes, there's, there's no mention of a change at all. When we talk about the rapture, we have changed believers going to heaven. When we talk about the second coming of Christ, we have changed believers coming back to earth. At the rapture, there's no mention of the earth being judged. At the second coming of Christ, the earth is judged and righteousness is established in Christ's kingdom. The rapture is not mentioned in the Old Testament. The second coming of Christ is predicted often in the Old Testament. The rapture only impacts believers. The second coming affects everybody. The rapture, there is no mention of Satan. The second coming says that Satan will be bound the rapture, Christ comes for his own people. The, the second coming, he says he comes with his own people. In the rapture, he comes in the air. At the second coming, he comes to the earth. He claims his bride, he claims his followers at the rapture. He comes with his bride at the second coming. At the rapture, it's going to be instantaneous. At the second coming, every eye is going to see him. It's going to be very, very public. So regardless of the timing issues, whether a person's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whatever they are, the Bible does very clearly seem to indicate them as two different events. How far apart they are, people debate and argue about. But they are two distinct events. The rapture and the second coming are spoken of in different terms in different ways. So here in Acts chapter 15, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just checking to see if you're awake. Nobody blinked. Actually seeing if I can read. Huh? Great, great passage, 1 Corinthians 15. For those of you who are not real familiar with the, the scripture, this is the resurrection chapter. 
Paul's been talking about the importance of the resurrection and why you have to believe in the resurrection of Christ and what the resurrection of Christ means for us and what the resurrection body will be like. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, these, and he talks about the first Adam and the last Adam, the first Adam being Adam in Genesis, the last Adam being the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was raised, we will be raised. Because he has a glorified body, we'll have a glorified body. All those great teachings in 1 Corinthians 15. But then he comes up in verse 51, and he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. That is something that has never been revealed before. That's what the word means, the Greek word mysterion. Something never before revealed. Paul says, I'm going to show you something that is a mystery. Nobody in the Old Testament knew about it. We will not all sleep, meaning die in Christ, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised and incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We could go on and read a whole bunch of there, but I just want to focus on this one thing with you there. Paul says, this is something new. That in, in, everyone is going to receive a resurrection body when Jesus returns. And Paul says, the confidence of the resurrection is a beautiful thing. But he says, everybody will not experience a resurrection. Because there will be some of God's people who are going to enter God's presence without dying. We shall not all sleep. Some people are going to be changed still living on this earth. The bodies of those true believers who have died will be resurrected and given a new body. At the same time, the bodies of those who are, who are alive will be changed into their new glorified bodies. It's going to happen in the blink of an eye. And Paul says here, it's going to include all believers. So that should rule out the partial rapture theory. Paul believed he might live to see the return of the Lord Jesus. He said, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Jesus had promised it. He believed he might see it. The word change simply means to be changed into something different. We have a, we have a different, we will have a different kind of body. Bible students are, feel quite certain that our resurrection body is going to be like Jesus' resurrection body. Because the Apostle John said when he returns, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. When you look at the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was a real body. They talked to him. They ate with him. First John chapter 1 says they touched him. They hugged him. You know, he had a real body. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit floating around somewhere. He had a real body. But it was different than what his other body was. He actually ate with them. And so he could actually process food. And you know, he looked like himself. But, but the substance of his body was different. We're going to receive that kind of body that will never die, that will never grow old, that will never wear out. It's an incredible thing that Paul is teaching about here. But look, if you would, now, and we'll spend the, the, all the rest of our time in this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. If you remember being with us in, our, in some of our Sunday morning Bible studies, when we looked at 20, 20 sentences or 20 sentences to understanding the Bible, you remember that chronologically in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians was written before 1 Thessalonians. And so Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians that we are all going to be changed. Everyone's not going to be resurrected because apparently some people are going to live until the Lord comes back. And that change is going to be instantaneous. 
And here he deals with this same issue, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the most famous rapture passage in all of the Bible. And Paul's concept here is pastoral. He's not trying to give a chronology of end times events when he talks about this. We can presume and look at other passages and see maybe what he was talking about. But in this passage, he's trying to give people comfort. Let's read it and then we'll talk about it. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. They are apparently already in heaven, which we know they are, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. He's going to bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. And notice Paul says, we who are alive and remain. He thought he might live to see the rapture. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Wherefore, or therefore, comfort one another with these words. When Paul wrote these words, the believers in Thessalonica were all new in Christ. According to Acts chapter 17, it records Paul's visit there to Thessalonica to preach the gospel. In Acts 17, it records that many Jews and many Greeks came to Christ. and also records that Paul preached for about three weeks in Thessalonica. That's all. There was a lot of opposition to his ministry. So the Thessalonians did not have a lot of time with Paul before he was run out of town by those who opposed the gospel. But he did teach them about the return of Christ. He had talked about it already. If you look at, the early, if you look at some verses in chapter 1, he's talked about the return of Christ. He also taught them that there would likely be some pretty serious affliction because they followed the Lord Jesus. Many people in the post-trip movement look at pre-trip guys like me and say, Oh, you guys just think there's not going to be any trouble in this world and poof, God will take you out of here. No, it's not what we believe at all. There's a lot of tribulation before the Great Tribulation. And there's been lots of tribulation down through the centuries before the Great Tribulation is going to come. Turn back a page to chapter 3 of First Thessalonians, and look what Paul says. In chapter 3, he says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. Paul says, hey, we are going to suffer affliction. We were appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it has happened and you know. So we don't think we're going to escape all tribulation, that we're going to escape all, all affliction. We just believe we're going to escape the great tribulation, the seven years of God's outpouring of judgment on this earth. There are persecuted believers all over this planet right now who are being beaten and imprisoned and locked up in places because of their stand for Christ. That is going to, that's been going on for the last 2,000 years, and it will continue to do so until Jesus comes back. 
So we're not looking to escape affliction or think that everything's going to be rosy and cool until Jesus comes back. There is going to be affliction. But we do believe that we are not going to see the ultimate day of the Lord. But what's fascinating when you read that passage there, apparently the persecution had gotten so severe that some of the Thessalonians were afraid that they had missed the rapture and the tribulation had already begun. They were, there were apparently some false teachers who were promoting this view. You can read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and you see excuse me, that there were some false teachers who were saying, you've missed the rapture and the day of the Lord has happened. So apparently, if they were afraid the day of the Lord had already started when they'd missed the rapture, I have a hunch Paul was teaching the pre-tribulation rapture. They were also, they were not sure what was going to happen to their loved ones who had died in the Lord. Were they going to miss the rapture? I mean, if we don't live, I mean, if we die, they're going to miss the rapture. Remember, Paul only had three weeks in Thessalonica. And so Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians to help them understand about the return of the Lord Jesus. They knew Jesus was coming back. They knew they might be persecuted for Jesus' sake. But without the completed New Testament, which was still 15, 20 years away for most of it, and Revelation was not written to 35 or 40 years after this, they were confused about what was happening, could not remember the details of what Paul had taught them during his short stay at Thessalonica. So Paul writes here in Philippians 4, I do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brethren, about those who have died in the Lord. And, and, and I love that phrase where he talks about those who sleep in Jesus. What a great phrase. Those who have fallen asleep. It's a beautiful picture for those who have died knowing the Lord. And I don't want to spend a long time on this thought, but briefly I want to tell you, the Bible does not teach soul sleep. That the dead in Christ are in some kind of a state of unconscious existence in the afterlife. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He said in Philippians 1, he desired to depart this life and be with Christ, which is far better Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. The bodies of deceased believers, the bodies, are pictured as sleeping in Jesus, not the soul. Awaiting the resurrection of the body, but the soul is more alive than it has ever been in the presence of the Lord. And I want to share with you just uh, about seven brief points here in this, this passage here. Uh, we have, first of all, a reasoning about the rapture. Verse 14. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. Don't sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Since Jesus rose again, so will we. John 14, 19, Jesus says, because I live, you will live also. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 says, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Then those who belong to Christ will be resurrected at his coming. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, Since God raised the Lord Jesus, He will also raise us up by His power. So since Jesus was resurrected, we will also be resurrected if we die before the rapture. Paul says, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so all those people are with the Lord. He is going to bring them with Him. That is our reasoning behind all of this. Then we have a revelation in verse 15, where he says, We say this to you by the word of the Lord. This teaching came by the word of the Lord. Paul didn't dream this up to make the Thessalonians feel better in a time of trial and testing. 
We often do. You know, we, we come up with different things to say to people, say to grieving people to make them feel better. I, I, I hear that a lot of times, an old, an old gospel song that I hear people sing at, at, at different wakes, different times. She's an angel. You know, she got her wings. Or we say, well, they passed away, now they got their wings. Sorry, folks, but we don't become angels when we die. Angels are a distinct creation from human beings. We don't turn into angels. We don't get our wings when we die. You know, even if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't get your wings when you die. Because we're still going to be human beings, glorified human beings, with a glorified body, but we don't turn into angels. I hear lots of people say, well, they're in a better place. I know they're trying to give comfort to the people. But my thought is, if they knew Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're in a better place. But if they didn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're not in a better place. And Paul says, I'm telling you this by the word of the Lord. This is not something that I just sort of cooked up one night. And I'm trying to make you feel better about the people who've died in Christ who were your friends in the church. He says, this is revelation from God. We have this reasoning that because Jesus lives, we will live. We have this revelation coming right from the Lord that in verse 16, he says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Jesus Christ is not sending a representative to get us. This verse says he is personally coming, as he said in John 14. If I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. Here he says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And he is personally coming and he is announcing it three different ways. A shout, a voice of an archangel, and a trumpet. The shout, if you look at the, at the Greek word there, it is a military term. It means a shout of command. You guys have been in the military, you know what some of those may be. Fall in. Attention. Right face. Those are all shouts of command. These, we don't know what the shout is going to be. I don't know if Jesus is going to come in the clouds and yell, Come up! I don't know what he's going to do. Remember when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he called out, Lazarus, come forth! I don't know what the shout's going to be. The Bible doesn't say. But Paul says, <coughs> Excuse me, there's going to be a shout of, of command in a military fashion. There's going to be the voice of an archangel. We don't know what the voice of an archangel sounds like, but I bet we'll recognize it that day. There's going to be a trumpet sound, not as we think of the modern trumpet, but a ram's horn used in a variety of ways in biblical days to gather a crowd, to make an announcement, to sound an alarm. That big, that big sound of the, the, the shofar, as it was called, the ram's horn. Very common in the Old Testament. And Paul says, Jesus Christ himself is going to descend from heaven with the shout of command, with this voice of an archangel, with the ram's horn blowing, and he says there will be, a first of all, a resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive are going to get raptured, but they're not going to be first. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. Then we will join them in the clouds. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, we will be changed. Then he says, there will be the rapture. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Let me talk to you about that word there, because the word we get rapture from is the word caught up in that passage. Many people who, uh, in fact, a guy came up to me at Hartbutes Indian Days at the, at the powwow several years ago. He said, uh, Pastor, do you believe in the rapture? I said, well, of course I believe in the rapture. 
You know, how can you read First Thessalonians 4 and not believe in the rapture? Places I've been running into a bunch of guys around there saying there's no such thing as the rapture. Oh, really? I've never read First Thessalonians 4? You may, you may argue about when it's going to be, but, 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 but to say that, there, that there, there isn't one? I don't know where those guys are coming from. But Paul says here, we, we are going to be caught up. And what's interesting is that that same word that's translated here, caught up, harpazo, is used 14 times in the New Testament. And if you were to look through, I can give you all the references if you want me to sometime. Or you can send me an email, I'll tell you where all the, all the verses are. You, you, you can look them up. Let me just tell you a, a couple of them. John chapter 10, when Jesus is talking about being the, the good shepherd. He talks about, you know, that the hired man doesn't take care of the sheep. And he lets a wolf come in and, and grab the sheep and, and, and run away with it. He, he, he kind of catches the sheep and he runs away. That's the word harpazo. The wolf grabs him and, and takes it away. In that same chapter, John chapter 10, when he talks about that wonderful passage on eternal security, no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. That's that same word, harpazo. Nobody can reach into the hand of God and grab us and pull us out. Jude chapter 20, or Jude verse 23 talks about pulling people out of the fire. Same word though, to grab, to snatch them out. The Apostle Paul talked about what we believe is his experience of, uh, of death in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I knew a man who was caught up to the third heaven. Same word there, caught up. So you have this, this concept of a forcible removal, a grabbing of God's children. I like to think of it in modern terms. You, you guys have watched enough Western movies. You've seen you know, either the good guys are chasing the bad guys or the bad guys are chasing the good guys and... And somebody gets their, their horse gets shot out from under him. And as they're all galloping away, guy, he looks over his shoulder. And he sees his partner fell off his horse and his horse got shot out from under him. He wheels his horse around and he runs back and the guy holds his hands up and he reaches down and he grabs him and he pulls him up in the saddle and they gallop away. Oh, they always the exciting rescue scene in the westerns. That's the concept there. I'm going to reach down, God says, and I'm going to snatch him up. That's what the word caught up means, to snatch, to grab. There's, a, there's an element of power or force there. Then in 400 AD, the Greek New Testament was translated into the Latin, and the, the Latin word that they translated here, caught up, was, was, from the, was a form of the word raptus, from which in the family tree of language we get our English word rapture. So don't let anybody say, well, the English word rapture is not in the Bible. No, it's not. doesn't have to be. Here's the concept right there. We're going to be caught up. We're going to be snatched and pulled up. So there's a reasoning. There's a revelation. There's a return. There's a resurrection. There's a rapture. And then he says there's going to be a reunion. We're caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You see, Jesus isn't coming back to earth at this event. He's coming in the air, and he's going to catch us up to meet him. So regardless of where you place the timing, this is a distinct event from the second coming. The second coming of Christ, Jesus Christ comes, and as the Bible says, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is going to split, and it's going to allow the Jews to escape out of Jerusalem. And he's going to destroy the armies of the Antichrist. A totally different event. Here he says he's going to come in the clouds and he's going to snatch us up to meet all those believers who have died who have come. 
will be gathered together, reunited with our friends and loved ones, all those who had a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, now to be together with the Lord forever. What a great reunion that will be. Which brings us to the last verse there. They will be rejoicing. Comfort one another with these words, Paul says. Don't sorrow like the people who have no hope. We have wonderful, wonderful hope in Christ. Confidence that we will see our saved loved ones again. We've been reunited with them forever with the Lord Jesus for all eternity. And although the Apostle Paul does not in this passage, nor is there any other passage, where he specifies the time of the rapture, why would a post-tribulation rapture be a comfort to anybody? If that's what Paul had taught the Thessalonians, then when, per, when, when affliction and persecution came, and people says, hey, you're already in the day of the Lord. Oh, praise God, we only got seven more years, Jesus is coming. There wouldn't be any comfort to it. There wouldn't be any point to it. Uh, they would just figure that's the way that it was supposed to happen. We'll talk about some more of this in upcoming weeks, but let me close with you today uh, a great challenge from the Apostle John, 1 John 2, 28. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. And then I will be done for today. Fortunately, I'm almost done because my voice is just about gone. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Great thoughts there. Abide in Christ, he says. Abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dwell with Him so that when He appears, when He comes, we'll have confidence and we will not be ashamed before Him at His coming. See, the doctrine of the rapture is designed to be inspirational and motivational. When we understand what it's all about, regardless of where you place the timing, it's, it's supposed to be inspirational and motivational. When we understand what it's all about, we should be inspired and motivated to love God and serve God and be faithful and be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. John's giving us this challenge here, saying, are we going to be embarrassed when Jesus comes? What will he find us doing? How will he find us living? What do we know that God has told us to do that we have left undone? The rapture could happen any time. Little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, we won't be ashamed. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in the promise of Your coming. Lord, we know that we don't have all the details. We don't know the exact timing of everything. But we do know that you've promised to come back and get us, and you're going to do it. You're going to come yourself. You're not going to send the angels. You're going to come personally in the clouds. And those who have died in Christ are going to be raised with a new resurrection body. And we who are alive and remain until you come back are going to be instantly changed with our glorified body, and we will all rise up to meet you in the clouds, in the air, and be together for all of eternity.
Lord, I pray that it will be inspirational and motivational. That we will look forward to that day with great rejoicing and with great hope. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to be all that we should be for the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to, to seize the day and to live, live at this time period knowing that you brought us here, you put us here, you have us exactly where you want us to be at exactly this time in history to do exactly what you want us to do. So help us, Father, to, to be obedient to you. May we reach out to our loved ones, those who don't know Christ as their Savior. May we live the kind of life that draws them to the Lord Jesus. Lord, we don't know how much time we have. We may have a year, five years, ten years, twenty years. We don't, we don't know exactly. But we know you're coming. And we know that things are lining up. So help us, Father, to be, to be ready personally. Help us to be busy about your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.